who don't want to waste the crisis to Troy make global start. changes. <laughs> Troy, start. All right, I'm going to basically put myself on mute for a second. It's more theoretical than anything. Hello and welcome back. It's episode 131, the Hoover Institution's Law Talk podcast, coming to you as we always do from the faculty lounge of the Epstein and U School of Law, still open despite the risk to all our health. We only suspended class once, and that was for an outbreak of the French pox. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, former White House speechwriter and, of course, patient zero in said French pox outbreak. And I am joined, as always, by the Andre 3000 and big boy of the conservative legal movement. If either one of you gets that reference, then I'll happily succumb to the coronavirus because I'll have nothing left to live for. They are Richard Epstein, the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago, and John Yu, Visiting Fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Emanuel S. Heller Professor of Law at the University of California, Berkeley, and former Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Bush administration. All right, fellas, so quick epidemiological review. I live in a high rise and take mass transit into a shared office space in Manhattan. So as an actuarial matter, I am already considered dead right now. Uh, The two of you, are you both without classes to teach right now? Well, I'm without classes for a very simple reason. I do not teach. You've been banned from the building. No, no, I am banned from the building, uh, but no, I don't teach um, in the period when I'm back at, at NYU between mid-February and March, end of March. It's, I do all my teaching in the fall, so I have not had to make adjustments, but the NYU basically gave one day of grace, and then they put everybody on Zoom, and the complications are pretty uh, major. Uh, as best I can tell, people took it all in stride. I think the transition went pretty well. I think it's fair to say that if we did not have all this remote access stuff, the damages would be two to three times as great as it is. I think we will see an enormous amount of adaptation for people working. That said, NYU just basically uh, lay down the law. First, you couldn't do international travel. Then you can't do domestic travel. Then you travel cut casts. Then they cut virtually every single event. And so between basically Monday night and Wednesday morning, I think I was canceled out about seven or eight different events over the next month. So I think the time horizon for cancellation um, at this point is probably a month out. After that, it's day to day. And we'll just see what happens. Uh, you know, you look at all these lines, it's a slow increase with respect to the virus, but an unmistakable one. Is this thing going to spread up or is it going to peter out? Um, I've heard both kinds of estimations made, and you see different kinds of behaviors in different kinds of places, seems to be getting better under control in China, uh, getting worse in Italy, holding steady in the United States. So it's anybody's guess as to what tomorrow will bring. John, hard to imagine that there isn't any virus that hadn't already been thriving in Berkeley for decades, but how is it being handled there? <laughs> that's that's a good one. Anyone who's been in People's <laughs> Park, this is the least dangerous thing you could catch over there. <laughs> so... Actually, Berkeley, I think, is one of the universities that has acted quickly uh, in response to the virus, but I'm not sure whether it's a good idea. So here we all, uh, Berkeley canceled all events, all in-person gatherings, and required all of us to move classes online as of yesterday. So I've already taught one, two, I've taught three classes using Zoom. Uh, The first day, uh, we tried it out with some students in the room and some online. And then the second day, yesterday, today, we've done all online. I, I really uh, hated it. <laughs> I really confess I hated it. I really, uh, despite the fact I don't like teaching that much, I still miss the students. So one thing um, that's interesting, I think, is that this might change the economics of higher education because if you're just giving a lecture and you've given that lecture over and over again, roughly the same for years, I don't see why Zoom or some other kind of internet-based mass learning system is not okay, because you're really just directing speech from one person to a lot of people. But for things like law school or for advanced seminars, I I found it really difficult. How do you, managing conversation uh, and back and forth uh, and questioning I think it was very difficult with Zoom. Now, it's kind of interesting. I don't know. Maybe each school is different. So you you go on there, and there's your little picture, and then there's little tiles representing each student. 
And then like, how do you know when they want to ask a question? Most of the students I might observe keep their cameras off. I don't know why. Maybe they're not wearing, oh, you're just in their underwear. Maybe they're eating, I don't know, they're eating out of a can of Spam or something during the class. But anyway, they keep their cameras. So uh, there's like, a, you know, there's a little button you press. I think the students press and a little blue hand appears. I didn't know what the blue hand was at first. Like whether it was, they wouldn't ask a question or they were saying, talk to the hand. Who could, how do you know? I so eventually I had a system where I've been said, saying that for a while, John. <laughs> and then you, uh, and you don't want them to have their mics on uh, during while you're talking or when one student's talking because it creates all kinds of uh, crosstalk and feedback. So you have to figure out a way to manage it so one person talks versus another. You know, it really made me realize that the Richard Epstein system of shaking, of putting your hand up and shaking it wildly about is a good way to figure out who to call on. <laughs> I just feel like if this social distancing thing goes on, that was not the term for it when I was in high school, by the way. If the social distancing thing goes on, I feel yeah, like just, it. Troy, you just called it the good old fashioned bullying. Yeah. Mean girls. You were just <laughs> yeah. one of those mean girls. Right. I mean, we were very old school about it. I just feel like the trajectory of this is. It ends with Richard playing a lot of chess matches against himself and John eating McRibs in his underwear. I mean, fr frankly, virus like or no heaven. virus. Yeah, I thought this was the trajectory for a while, but that's where hey, it that's heaven. Like and, and actually, this is the best time because the Shamrock Shake has become available. You, so John. Shamrock oh Shake plus the McRib, that's heaven. <laughs> you, you know what? For a man as credentialed as you are, you live like an animal. All right, let's get to the all the business in the courts that everyone's forgetting about right now. And I want to start with a case that is coming before the Supreme Court out of Philadelphia. At issue here is Catholic Social Services. They had been working with the city of Philadelphia to place children in foster care homes, but because it's a Catholic organization, they were not willing to place children with same-sex couples. The city at that point cuts off their contract because they say the behavior is discriminatory. Catholic Social Services says, hang on, how are you not abridging our rights to the free exercise of our religion by preventing us from helping place kids unless we do it on terms that violate the tenets of our faith? So, Richard, a little more complicated here than what we had in religious liberty cases like the Masterpiece Cake case, because here you have the organization in question acting not in a purely private character, but as a contractor for the yeah. state, how heavily does that fact influence the, the potential outcome in a case like this? Well, what it does is it starts to bring back the question in Smith against the Employment Division, uh, which was a ruling which held that uh, when you start dealing with various kinds of benefits from the government, the only thing that you're entitled to get is a neutral treatment. Uh, there was no notion that there should be any form of accommodation that was appropriate in that case. And that decision provoked a huge uproar and resulted in the passage of the Religious Restoration Reform Act. Uh, half of which was declared unconstitutional as applied to the state, uh, but the rest of which was upheld as applied to the federal government. And, and the arguments in these particular cases are extremely vexing. The church comes in and says, look, you're keeping everybody else in these programs. We certainly can give a huge amount of benefit to the people who are going on in these cases. Uh, you let us take the cases that we want. Uh, we will be able to help them. We have really splendid people. And what you then do is you redirect the um, people who are same-sex couples to somebody else. Um, one of the things that's not mentioned in the opinion down below is the question is, what's the role of the birth parents with respect to the placement of these children? I think the better accommodation under these kinds of situations is if they say, look, we don't want this kid to be placed with the same-sex couple, and if we do it ourselves, that's fine. Um, and so we're willing to use the Catholic services. If somebody says we really want this, they could use somebody else. And I think, in effect, what happens is that the city, rather than playing itself as judge on all of these things, should, in effect, uh, decide to act as a kind of a matchmaker, matching the parents up with the foster parents in whatever way sees fit. Uh, this was a problem, I might add, that I got involved with a long time ago, some 30-odd years ago, when there was a similar con you know, cancellation with respect to public charities in New York having to do with uh, public Catholic charities in New York, having to do with abortion, where they did not want to take it in and do this. And 
and it turned out that the city won when it canceled out Catholic charities. I think this is a real charity. I mean, what you have to understand is uh, these Catholic churches are expert at this. They help thousands of people in many, many ways. Um, I think whatever you don't like about their views on same-sex marriages, I want them to participate in these kinds of programs. And I certainly don't think that the Philadelphia law, given the religious preferences, should dominate in this particular case because there's so many easy accommodations. And one of the issues that I hope will be resolved is do we get rid of Smith, which is, I think, one of Justice Scalia's very worst opinions, and go back to the rule which says we start making a reasonable accommodation. And the accommodations here are really easy to make. Uh, you just get the form from people, and if they say they want to have same-sex couples considered, or even only same-sex couples, I'm perfectly fine with that, they should be able to do it. To put it in just one sentence, I think the decisive choice should not be made by the agency, but should be made by the parents who are putting their child up for forced care or for adoption. And for that purpose, I think you want the widest array of possible choices on the other side and the most, the largest potential pool of supplies of these services. So I'm not very sympathetic on this case to the public administrators. Generally speaking, I think that trying to apply anti-discrimination laws in these sorts of cases is a mistake and Smith should go. John, this is part of the diagnosis of the case that appeared at Vox, courtesy of Ian Melheiser. I'm going to read you a quote. If the Supreme Court overrules Smith, that would mean that state laws that trigger religious objections would also be subject to a strict compelling interest test. We would move closer to the world that Scalia warned of, where a religious individual might become a law unto himself. How well-founded do you think that concern is? I think it's a little exaggerated, actually, alarmist even, to claim that it would be the creation of some kind of new, terrible world. It actually would just be the world as it existed before Smith. I think Smith is uh, decided around 1993, 91 or 93. 90. 90. 90. 90. Before that, the law had been that if you were a religious group or a religious individual and the government was infringing on your free, you know, free exercise of religion, then the government had to have a, you know, had to survive strict scrutiny. It had to have a compelling uh, state interest and had to be narrowly tailored. There's no, uh, this is not no introduction of any great new revolutionary approach. This is just actually a restoration uh, to the way the things used to be. Plus, it's actually the same test that applies to all kinds of other individual rights. If the government places uh, restrictions on speech, for example, it has to survive uh, the same test. So I actually don't. I actually think I think society uh, before Smith uh, was quite capable of accommodating uh, people with sincere religious beliefs that uh, came into conflict with the law. It was really. Uh, I share Richard's criticism of Smith. Uh, put aside, I think just I think he got it wrong. But it, you know, Scalia was somebody who really, um, you know, tried to steer along the lights of the original understanding of the Constitution. And there's very little evidence, I think, that the original understanding of the Constitution that the framers would have wanted this kind of regime, where people who are you know religiously you know, or people of faith. Uh, have to live under these generally applicable laws, even at the cost of living their religion. The interesting question, I think, is more um, if you are going to grant accommodations to religious groups, who should do it first? Ideally, we would like the legislature or the executive branch to put in exceptions to laws like this so that religious groups can participate. And then only as a last resort should the court step in and carve one out if you know, these kind of laws really are uh, oppressing people's rights to practice religion. Look, one, one way to say this, and I think John is right, there are two specific guarantees. One is we want to prevent an establishment, and the other is we want to preserve free exercise. And it's the latter that's involved here. Neither of these two guarantees speak of essentially a neutral law. It's a little bit closer on the establishment side, although the original meaning wasn't so much about 
preferences to religion as it was designating a religion as the established church of Massachusetts of Virginia, which was common at that time. So the First Amendment on that issue was designed to create state monopolies over established religions, not to say that they're no part of it. But free exercise, I think, is extremely important. But the limits on freedom that you oppose with respect to religious freedom are the same as those you impose on anybody else. And under those circumstances, these guys are not trying to do anything to harm individuals, to have human sacrifices and so forth. The hard question is, does liberty even get you into the world where affirmative benefits are going to be given out? In 1789, there weren't many affirmative benefits, and the answer was probably uh, we never touched that issue. Uh, but once you get into the 20th century and the 21st century, it seems pretty clear with the doctrine of unconstitutional conditions that we have to constrain the government pretty much in the same way when it distributes benefits as we do when it starts to impose coercion. Another way to look at this is they're raising money from all sorts of people who are Catholics and who believe in their church, and they're telling them, your money can only be spent to fund other religious institutions. It cannot be spent to fund your own. And I think so long as you give a general taxation, I think all the institutions that are represented on the tax side, which is everybody, should be represented on the benefit side. And one does not want to be crazy if if you give it to the parent rather than to the city to decide who is going to be forced to care by whom, it seems to me that uh, you get decentralized control. There's nobody who's being a law unto himself. If somebody wants to stay away from the Catholic system, they can do so. And I think that that's fine as well. All right. So this one is fun. The Trump reelection campaign has now filed libel lawsuits against the New York Times and the Washington Post over their coverage. Here are the offending pieces, because it's just little snippets of each one. In the Times, it was an opinion piece by Max Frankel, where he wrote, quote, there was no need for detailed electoral collusion between the Trump campaign and Vladimir Putin's oligarchy because they had an overarching deal. The quid of help in the campaign against Hillary Clinton for the quo of a new pro-Russian foreign policy starting with relief from the Obama administration's burdensome economic sanctions. The Trumpites knew about the quid and held out the prospect of the quo, close quote. And then in the Post, the one by Greg Sargent, uh, it's one line in that piece. Mueller also concluded that Trump and or his campaign eagerly encouraged, tried to conspire with, and happily profited off of these efforts close quote, and then one by Paul Waldman, where he wrote, again, just one sentence, who knows what sort of aid Russia and North Korea will give to the Trump campaign now that he has invited them to offer their assistance, close quote. And the Trump campaign says none of these are factual statements. They are all just setting out to tar the president. They are suing for both compensatory and punitive damages. John, do these have any chance in court, or are they just sort of uh, political election year noise? If I, uh, there's a difference between predicting what the courts would do and what's the right constitutional answer. Predicting what the courts would do, I don't think these lawsuits have any chance. The basic approach is uh, if you're a public figure, and certainly Donald Trump is, he's wanted to be one for many, many decades. If you're a public figure, then you People can say what they like about you, uh, absence, um, what they used to call absence of malice or uh, reckless disregard for uh, the facts. All the things you just mentioned, Timitra, are just the way people characterize what the facts are. They're just people claiming there was a conspiracy or quid pro quo. They're still entitled to claim that even if Mueller's report cleared President Trump, they could be saying, oh, I'm thinking about things that weren't in the Mueller report, for example, and so on. So I I just think all those are going to all those cases are going to lose and they should lose. I mean, I think if there's one person in the country that people should be able to say anything they like to like about and to it should be the president of the United States. Now, the second, I think, more interesting question is whether this regime, which was introduced in New York Times versus Sullivan, which is which is, is it really the regime that the founders who wrote the First Amendment really thought would control uh, the press. I think in some ways this uh, absence of malice or reckless disregard standard is probably too generous uh, to newspapers or cable news or whatever. But um, it has worked for quite a long time now, for 60 years. And the 64. last thing— 
54. Wow. Yeah. And the last thing we want to do is, I think, change that standard because one thing that's you know, great about the United States is that we do have such a robust and uh, full-throated political discourse. And I think we would want to be careful before we tried to change any standard that might lead to a serious reduction of that uh, political discourse, because that's what keeps our democracy uh, healthy, keeps our agents in government on their toes. Richard, this is an area of law that the president has obsessed over for a long time. He's yeah. repeatedly said that he wants to open up the country's libel laws, make them tougher. And he's, you know, he said the journalists in particular can get away with murder. What is your reaction to that argument from him? Well, in 1986, I wrote an article to was New York Times against Sullivan rightly decided. And I concluded at the time that it was not. Uh, I much prefer the uh, performance that Judge Taft had before he became professor in a case called Hallam, in which he says, look, um, if you're making pure statements about opinions, that these are going to be protected. If you're making statements about fact, they're not. Then the question is, which is which? And here, the standard text that developed in the early part of the 20th century by a man named Van Vechten Vita was, if you just put an announcement out there of the kinds that you see in these particular cases and give no supporting information, uh, then we're going to treat that as a statement of facts. And in fact, it is in fact false that uh, Donald Trump did collude with the Russians. Indeed, there's a lot of evidence that everybody inside the administration knew that, um, including Mr. Comey before President Trump actually sat into office. Uh, but if on the other hand, you give all the stuff, then people could evaluate. Uh, so if you just take that as the first cut, and then it turns out that he, Trump is going to be able to survive a motion for summary judgment. But there is a second Trump uh, cut that you have to worry about. When you're dealing with events at this level of public knowledge, uh, the argument is sometimes made, well, everybody knows exactly enough of this background information that when they look at this setting, it's not only on the secret information that the particular fellow had, it's on all this public information. So if you said that about Mr. Anonymous Jones running for an election, saying two days before the election he committed adultery when he did not, um, that might be actionable. But statements about Trump, the background information is too strong. And I think that that is surely the way in which the current law is going to go on this stuff. So I don't think these suits have a lot of a chance. My own view about this is I actually take this kind of stuff much more seriously. So suppose what we did is we worried about actual malice. And then when we got these guys up on the stand is they said the following thing. Well, we knew these statements were false, but you know we really do not like Donald Trump. And so long as we have the protection of the New York Times doc, um, we're going to take advantage of him. We're going to hammer him for everything it's worth. Well, that's kind of an admission that they are doing what ought not to be done. Uh, they're not going to make that kind of statement. Uh, but essentially what I think about this is I think the lawsuits reluctantly ought to lose. But I think that uh, one ought to really, in the court of public opinion, really flay these kinds of people for making these kinds of charges. Um, yeah, there was no evidence. And when you think back, as you know, John, I was a critic of the Mueller investigation from day one, right? Yes. Uh, yes, you were. You were. I thought the whole thing was a complete setup. It seemed to me to be preposterous. It was a perfectly clear, innocent explanation of what was going on. The Russians basically decided that disinformation would be completely valid and helpful for them, regardless of who won. And they had no idea the billions of dollars worth of positive return they got from a few paltry uh, Twitter ads because of the ways in which the press kind of magnified this stuff. I think that Trump was right. I think he's right to be furious about the overall situation. Uh, I think he should flay after them. This is a case where indeed the label fake news, which he uses much too promiscuously, I think um, actually applies to what's going on. I would like to add my voice of a complete disrespect for the Washington Post and the New York Times in the way in which they've handled these stories, the way in which they've handled the stories about uh, Trump's nominees to the United States Supreme Court. I think they really have taken advantage of a liberal rule. One of the things you'd hope would happen with respect to the press is knowing that it gets the benefit of the New York Times rule, which functionally today is almost a virtual absolute immunity. There has not been a successful case brought by a public official against any major newspaper since 1990, I think, or 1991, is that they would have a little bit of self-discipline, uh, but they don't. Uh, the simple truth about it is the single best thing for the financial health of the New York Times is Donald Trump. Because if he weren't around to 
beat them up every single day, uh, their readership would probably shrink by 50%. So I'm very upset about the whole kind of situation. I think he's right. I think in the end, I probably would reluctantly vote with John. Um, but I think most people, when they give the defense for the New York Times, it's with roaring and uncritical enthusiasm. And that's not a position that I would hold. John, one of the other areas where the president's been very critical of libel laws is in these tell-all books, some of them written by journalists with access, some of them written by former White House staffers. And right now we've got this drama around John Bolton's forthcoming book and what the White House will or won't allow. The president has said he basically doesn't want that book published. As a veteran of an administration, what's your view, both as a matter of professional practice for the staffers and as a matter of law about the propriety of these books and what goes into them? Well, I love these books. <laughs> come on. <laughs> oh, They're God. so great. I mean, I love the gossip. Come on. Come on. Everybody loves these books. That's why people buy them. Now, uh, you know, it's interesting. There's actually a Supreme Court case about this, about whether a former government official who wanted to publish uh, things that might have had secret or classified information and had a right. And so this fellow claimed that he had a free speech right, you know, free press right to publish the book. Uh, the government said, uh, we have the right to stop you. And it's interesting with the Supreme Court's, and I generally uh, side on the favor of the government official. I think government officials should have the right to write the book, and I don't think the government can stop him. So what the Supreme Court did is it said, well, what you did, and this was a guy who used to work, I think, in the CIA or uh, Snap. named Snap, yeah, Frank Snap. Uh, the court said, well, what you really did is you broke your employment contract. When you enter, when you go work for the government, they make you sign a bunch of forms. One of those forms, I, mean, I remember signing, it says you will not disclo disclose classified information that you learn during your time in government. And so the court said, this is kind of interesting, and I think it actually reached uh, a good outcome in terms of results, although I don't think it makes a lot of sense legally, was, okay, the government official has the right to publish the book, but all the profits go to the government. You lose all the profits, Mr. Snap. Uh, and so if you really believe, you know, you're a government official, you really believe the First Amendment, go ahead and publish the book. If you believe people should know, what do you care about the profits? So John Bolton, I bet even if he, uh, now I'm not representing him, like he'd kill me if, I, if, he, if he thought that I was saying this is his view, but I bet he'd still publish his book even if he was making no money out of it, because I think he would want the historical record to be relatively complete so that people in the future, Americans in the future, can learn and uh, benefit from things that succeeded or failed today. And I think, and we benefit just in the same way from reading, for example, uh, memoirs about what happened during the Cuban Missile Crisis or during the Berlin Wall Crisis and so on. And, and so I, we don't want to discourage that kind of knowledge from being handed down. All right, another oh. interesting. Go ahead. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm not so sure I agree with that. I agree with you that the ability to control this by getting royalties from the book is not going to work. Uh, and I also have a more cynical explanation. Uh, you get something from the royalties, but boy, what you can get from the speaking engagements that follow, which may or may not be caught by that. <laughs> well, this is the secret of the entire publishing industry. Yes. Yeah. Well, essentially, look, I mean, I, as an author of academic books, the following yeah, I was going to say, Richard, who's, who's having you speak to the American Express Travel Agents Association about the liberal constitution. No, they don't you gotta, do that. You gotta get, you gotta do juicier stuff. No, no, no. Look, I mean, one of the things, I, I will give you a secret. Um, John Sexton, my beloved ex-president at NYU, looked at me one day and he said, Richard, you and I are common men. And I looked at him and says, what do you mean? He says, whenever we go out and give a speech, they say, John Sexton, president of NYU, Richard Epstein, author of somebody. He says, the moment you have to put the comma on there, your royalties or your speaking fees go down by uh, 100% or by 90%. <laughs> and he's absolutely right about all of that stuff. But the takings book, I mean, I would say the number of consulting jobs that you get by virtue of having written a book, the number of interviews that you get, the number of gigs that you get and so forth. That's a book that I wrote 35 years ago, and it's the gift that keeps on giving. Now, it has to be a good book in order to get that, but that's the way it goes. Gee, so now, what you should do is write a book called Takings 2. No, I, I, <laughs> the no, 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 I don't want to. I mean, that's the other thing, John. If you got a book like that, don't mess with it. I mean, 35 years, you don't put out a second edition. When you think of the second edition of the concept of law by heart, 
or of the theory of justice by Rawls, uh, the common judgment is it would be better that they not write it at all. Some um, of them would be better if they never wrote it in the first place. No, no, John, 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 if you could write a mega classic like that, I mean, you know, me too. I, I agree with all that, but I think there's also another point. Um, you know, what kind of, there's a serious issue here. Uh, I don't mind tell walls, but if you're getting confidential information um, to somebody and they ask you to sign an agreement, that does not strike me as being something like the standard business NDA. Um, if you wish to be able to have collaborations and you can't get these agreements, suppose there are three people in the room. What Mr. Bolton does, he says, I talked to the president and then the horrible Miss X, she was there and he backed them up every way. Uh, you're not going to get people to speak in candor if they could be pilloried by disappointed guys. And in fact, I could tell you what I think happened to um, Bolton. It's not that I agree with him or disagree with him, but Epstein's iron law of Trump to Mrs. Files is that no human being can work for that man for more than 18 months before he or she goes mad. Uh, he's erratic. <laughs> he's despotic. Um, he may be even right on many kinds of issues, but what happens, he just breaks your spirit uh, because no matter what you see, he will do whatever he wants. And so life is talking him off the ledge. Um, and that's an extremely difficult thing. And then he just fires you. And so I think vengeance is the dominant motive in these kinds of cases with somebody like Bolton. Um, I, I don't even know who's and right or wrong on this. Can I just interrupt here and say yeah, when yeah. it comes to vengeance, we should always uh, go by the Klingon proverb. Revenge is a dish best served cold. I don't even know what that means. Working, <laughs> your description of your description of working in that White House, Richard, sounds a lot like hosting this podcast. Uh, I'm going Wait, to move you guys. He's got to do this with this guy 24 <laughs> seven, right? Ouch. And, and you know, his attitude is: I will tell you today, I solemnly agree to do X, and then he ad libs it the moment you're gone. And and so people they I, they, they clearly they just get exhausted working for this man. Salt. Um, he's a bully. He insults them. But they do know it when they go in. It's not like there's any secret. I didn't say they did. It's going to be like working for the guy. And I, he's got four chief of staffs in four years. He's got four national security advisors. I mean, you know, you go in there, they know what's going to happen to them. So they shouldn't be upset. I think the he just, secret, kicked, he just kicked his chief of staff out to be the envoy to Northern Ireland, one of the, the most desirable envoy. jobs in the federal government, <laughs> spending the a lot of time with Irish. The secret to this, too, I'd be curious if this was your experience, John, is when you are in these positions in Washington, you about 80 percent of the time know who the people are who are reading their books already. Oh, yeah, because they're taking notes. All they're the taking time. assiduous <laughs> notes in every meeting yeah. more than is justified by any of the substance of what's going now, on. I will confess, I wrote a book about my time in the government, but it was, first of all, nobody bought it. Nobody read it. But it was, <laughs> but it was all based on the documents. So I didn't take any notes when I was in the government. But unfortunately, I had a habit of writing memos. And so all those memos provided, you know, but I do remember in the government, there were certain people who were taking notes about in every meeting, no matter what was being said. And it wasn't just when they were talking, it was yeah. when everyone else was. Talking. So there are people writing the books. Yeah, you just know. Um, OK, I'm going to transition us to an, another interesting case that was before the Supreme Court recently dealt with the issue of free speech and sort of by extension, uh, illegal immigration. The facts were you had a woman in San Jose who ran an immigration consulting firm. She was telling these primarily Filipino home health care workers in California that she could get them green cards. Turned out to be a scam, and she was charging them huge fees to apply to a, a program that had already been discontinued. But in addition to her conviction on mail fraud charges, she was also convicted of violating a federal law from 1986 that makes it a crime to encourage someone to come or to stay in the United States illegally. And her lawyers argued that that conviction should be thrown out because that law is a First Amendment violation. John, how do you read this case? It's interesting. Uh, it can't be uh, the case that every uh, type of speech that's involved with breaking the law is protected by the First Amendment. So there are some kinds of crimes which themselves just are speaking, uh, like conspiracy, for example. You know, planning to commit a crime is itself a crime. And when you engage in conspiracy, you do, you're talking. Or fraud, uh, you know, when you induce somebody to do something you're you're, de you're defrauding them. You're doing it by talking. Mail and wire fraud is also speech. So it can't be that the First Amendment just protects 
any kind of speaking, there are certain kinds of speech which just are criminal. Uh, so this one is interesting because this is not conspiracy to violate a criminal law because staying in the country illegally is not a crime. It's a civil violation. Right? It's a it's a not, and the the remedy is that you go through this. Uh, process through the immigration courts, and then you're just remo- you know removed from the country, or what we used to call uh, deported. So it doesn't strictly fall within that idea of exactly uh, conspiring to commit a crime. Second, she was already convicted for engaging in the criminal activity, the illegal activity, um, and so it's hard to me. So to me, it seems like if someone were there. And they were saying, you should stay in the country, even if it's illegal, stay in the country. That does seem protected by the First Amendment. You have state officials here in California and mayors of places like Oakland and Berkeley saying things things like that all the time to large numbers of people. So I don't think that's uh, illegal. I I mean, and I don't think and I think that is protected by the First Amendment. I guess when it gets more strictly to I want you to do something illegal, I'm going to help you, then I think that's closer to something that's not protected. But since she was already convicted of the underlying crime anyway, I don't see why the government should try try to go around and prosecute people for this. Well, I disagree a little bit. Um, first of all, you always want to convict something on a really strong charge. And this was basically mail fraud, was common law fraud, bilking people by promising somebody they could not get. And the other thing seems to be icing on the cake. Uh, but then what you have to do is to ask about the hypothetical situation where somebody's engaged in the encouragement game, but is not engaged in the actual mail fraud game. And, and one has to be, I think, very cautious about both sides of this thing. So uh, we did have this case involving these uh, false heroes. Um, they pretended that they had won the Medal of Honor or some other prize. And what happens is they basically cheapen the valor of every medal to everybody else. It was a clear case of systematic fraud, uh, but there was no obvious victim. And the Supreme Court somehow or other thought that it was okay uh, not to punish that, even if you restricted the statute to cover cases in which the violations were knowing. I thought that that was a terrible mistake. If it turns out that you have many small acts of frauds that you can't redress through private actions, the real central function of regulation is to go in and stop that uh, in order to overcome the coordination problem that small plaintiffs trying to bring their own cases, even with class actions, can't do. But the Supreme Court did not let that go. And if Alvarez, the name of that case, is pretty good law, it's going to be hard to keep this particular thing up. Uh, the second thing I think there's about this is there's encouragement and there's encouragement. And this is what makes it so difficult. I have no question if I'm sitting around the table and I tell somebody who is an illegal alien, gee, I really uh, encourage you to stay as as long as you can. We don't want to make that kind of thing criminal. Um, But suppose it turns out that we get somebody who's in a line of business, and what they say is, we really want to encourage you to do that, and I can direct you to a person who can now assist you. I think those cases are much closer. And John, I think, hit that the problem is at the same time we have the clear and present danger rule, you're not going to be held responsible uh, for speech unless it presents a clear and present danger of a substantive evil the government likes to prevent. We also have the conspiracy rules. And if you go back to the famous cases like Schenck and Abrams, which raised these issues, those conspiracy counts still survive today. One way to get this, there was a famous case called Whitney against California, a syndicalist kind of communist labor organist type situation. You mean uh, Bernie Sanders? Sorry. No, no, I don't mean Bernie Sanders. (laughs) I mean, God knows what he gets punished for, but he will have to face his um, uh, maker at the polls, I hope. Uh, But there was this stirring speech by Justice Brandeis about how liberty is the spark of intelligence, the spark of public debate, and the spark of everything else. And it was treated as a stirring defense of it. What you have to remember is that speech was a concurrence. He agreed that the conviction should stand for conspiracy. And now, what John's case is about is there's encouragement without conspiracy. But now, suppose we give a situation where two people get together and start leaning on you. Uh, does a conspiracy case cut that? So I think it's actually a harder case than John. I agree here 
Why do you want to push it if it turns out you've got them on mail fraud and you could just uh, basically push for a highly larger sentence? But I would be very nervous about a situation that said there's per se immunity um, from any kind of encouragement of illegal activity, regardless of the surrounding circumstances. And I'm very unhappy about trying to figure out what those circumstances are that should count. So it's like so many other areas in the First Amendment. It looks easy when you start, but by the time you start pushing it, it's very hard indeed. John, one of the arguments that was made before the court in defense of the statute was that, well, yes, you can read the statute broadly based on the actual drafting, but in practice, it's not really used that way. So you're not going to use it against the grandmother who tells her grandkid to stay in the country, but you're going to use it against low lowlifes like the, the woman in this case. Mm. That particular argument, don't worry about the drafting. It's really the application that counts. How likely is that to be persuasive for a court and how persuasive would it be for you? I'm not very persuaded. And actually, the uh, weight of the law goes the other way. Uh, usually when it comes to first, when it comes to criminal law, the court has said it has to be clear and precise. They, there's even a doctrine called void for vagueness, uh, particularly in criminal law, where if the law is unclear, the court's just going to strike it down because you can't tell beforehand what you're allowed to do or not do, regardless of how prosecutors enforce it. But then there's even another doctrine on top of that uh, that makes it even tougher, which is in the speech area, because in the speech area, there's this even a very similar idea called it's something called like chilling effect uh, sometimes is what most people would know it by. And that's the idea that when it comes to laws that affect speech, uh, People should be able to challenge them even before they're enforced because just having the law on the books without – even before people start bringing cases or just because they bring one kind of case and not another, it might have the effect of causing people not to speak who wouldn't actually have a constitutional right. And so those two doctrines together uh, for a law like this one that's punishing speech, uh, I think the court would actually be far more demanding and look at it just on its text and say, is this law vague? Can you tell what you're allowed to do or not do and not even ask about how it's enforced? Oh, there's a risk to that as well. I mean, these books, this law has been on the books now for 34 years, right? 1986, I think you said, Tron. Yeah. And, and the number of cases of malprosecution that has taken place underneath it uh, seems to have been zero. At least there's nothing in the oral arguments or the briefs which say, See how this has been used. So I have the following reaction about abuse cases. If a statute is new and untried and nobody knows which way it's going to go, I'm willing to listen to the claims of abuse. But when the statute has been tried and tested under multiple circumstances and you have to ask whether this sort of indefinite line has existed and you don't see any signs of abuse, I'm willing to do this. So to give you an analogy from the religious cases, and there are many kinds of programs that took place in which what happened is that they had religious schools receiving money from the government to do non-religious studies, and they took the students and they put them out from the religious rooms into some more neutral or secular environment. And Justice Brennan, in these cases, struck it down on the theory that intermingling and abuse was a problem. And my reaction was, he might have said that if the statute had never been tried, but when you have years upon years of experience and nobody could point to a particular violation, I don't like that argument. I think at that particular point, what you do is you wait to strike down the law until you see some evidence of abuse. And I think the case that we have of this shyster is not that kind of case. And so I would probably on these things come out the other way. And I would do so because I think the longevity of the particular statute and the absence of abuse means that they are just hypotheticals. If this were right out of the box and the government were mounting multiple campaigns against individuals, well, at that particular point, I would go the other way. So I do think that looking at the circumstances in these cases, actually is a prudent thing to do. Last Supreme Court case that we'll talk about, the biggest one in some ways, at least measured by the press coverage, mostly because of Chuck Schumer, has been this case that the court took up out of Louisiana. This is an abortion case very similar to the one that the court heard back in 2016 out of Texas, where it struck down a law that required doctors who were performing abortions to have admitting privileges at a local hospital. But of course, Different lineup back then, and the question here is if the burden this requirement is imposing on women who are seeking abortions is commensurate with any health benefits for the women involved. In the Texas case, court said no. The argument from the pro-choice side here is that's settled. Just, just live with that precedent. John, what do you make of that argument? So it's a really interesting case. 
I mean, really, it's interesting, not because of the doctrine, but because it shows the effect that Justice Kavanaugh's presence on the court is going to have. Because, as you said, under just with Justice Kennedy sitting in that seat, Texas had a very similar law. Uh, Justice Kennedy joined with uh, the four liberals, uh, Ginsburg, Kagan, Sotomayor, and I always forget the friar. Oh, yeah, of course, Breyer. And uh, they said that uh, requiring that doctors who perform abortions have admitting privileges, uh, yes, that could conceivably fall within the state's interest to regulate the medical profession, but it wasn't really. It really was designed to limit abortion and place what's called, quote-unquote, an undue burden uh, on abortion. And that's really the test that came out of Casey and was developed by Justice O'Connor. Okay, swap in Kavanaugh for Kennedy. Uh, if Kavanaugh were to vote the other way, then that case you would expect would be reversed. Um, I do think states do have a strong interest in regulating the professions, the medical profession, the legal profession. You know, you don't want the courts to sit there and second guess medical judgment by the by the state government. That the similar reasoning led the court to uphold uh, the banning of what was called partial birth abortion procedures, uh, both at the federal and state level, because the governments were uh, making a judgment that this was not a kind of medical procedure that they were going to allow that didn't uh, advance health and safety and was risky. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I think this, but the bad thing, and this is where I think the interesting question is whether Justice Chief Justice Roberts is going to maintain his position from dissenting in the Texas case, because he's also someone who doesn't want the court to seem too political. He probably doesn't want uh, to make it look like just the change of one person on the court can completely turn abortion doctrine around. But if the court does strike down this Louisiana case, you can start seeing a, a path towards overruling Roe versus Wade, which is what President Trump uh, promise he would try to do with his judicial appointment. So it'd be, uh, it'd be allowing him to keep a, another campaign promise. Well, I mean, I have a very funny reaction to this. In 1973, I wrote an article in the Supreme Court Review denouncing in many ways the logic which I had led to the decision in Roe v. Wade. And then you run into the problem. It is now uh, 47 years later. Do you simply say that the weight of accumulated practice is enough that you revisit this? And I actually think that that's one of the hardest questions for any legal system to solve. But I'm inclined generally to to respect it. When Whole Woman's Health came up, I actually wrote a piece on the Hoover website in which I said I thought that the supposed health justification did not meet the standards that one would want to have. And so that uh, if you basically assume that Roe v. Wade is the law and you're not trying to finagle things and you do the undue burden standard, however it means, it probably passed. There was uh, some woman pretty effective doctor who wrote a piece in the Wall Street Journal a couple of days ago, I think maybe a week ago, in which she says, no, this is, bidding privileges really do matter. If you have them, you could get somebody right in. If you don't, then you have a case which is an extremist. Uh, then it's going to take you that much longer to fill out the paperwork, and who knows what's going to happen. This is not uh, decisive testimony because you haven't heard the other side on this particular question. But one of the things that you always worry about on these things is that the laws are perhaps identical, um, but the way in which the evidence comes in in the two cases may not be identical. And if it turns out that there is some decent medical arguments that could be made that this requirement, unlike other requirements, is in fact not an undue burden uh, because of the health interests involved, then I think you could actually distinguish the cases not because the statutes are different, but because the records turn out to be different. Now, one of the things you do is when you haven't read both sides of these things in great detail, is you don't answer the question as to whether or not this is a live possibility or whether it's something that's remote. But if I were on the Supreme Court, I would much prefer to see all nine justices engage that issue before we worried about whether or not the switch of one seat from uh, a man like uh, Kennedy to a man like Kavanaugh would make the difference. I'm not 
not even sure what Justice Kavanaugh thinks on these particular questions, so I, I would not want to prejudge him uh, on this particular case. I would rather the argument go on the merits. I take it, if I'm not mistaken, John, uh, one of the other issues in this case, which I don't think is going to bite, is the question of whether or not uh, it has to be a woman or whether it could be a clinic that could raise the issue, given the so-called standing doctrine. I don't think that that's going to derail anybody in these cases. And in my view, uh, I think these clinics are so heavily impacted, these doctors are so heavily engaged in this, that I would certainly be willing to allow a, quote, third-party challenge uh, to vindicate the claims of the women, because the only way the women can vindicate their claims is to have physicians who are ready to do this. I'm anxious to see the way in which this thing goes out. I'm also anxious to learn more about the way in which the new record is going to evolve. So just to be clear on that that standing point, so this suit uh, was not actually brought by a woman seeking an abortion. It was brought by the abortion providers. Mm-hmm. And, and Justice Alito seemed very skeptical of that in oral arguments. Uh, Justice Breyer, however, pointed out that that's something that apparently the court has allowed several times. And not past. only that, I'll go one step further. Um, when Roe v. Wade came up, one of the arguments that they said is that, you know, you don't have this case because the woman who was Miss Roe has already had her baby and the issue is moot. And what the Supreme Court said is that you have a recurrent issue evading review. The mootness question is not going to stop you because you don't want to have every time there's a woman who needs an abortion who's got the question resolve so the Supreme Court can't get it. And that's exactly what's going on in this particular case. Suppose you do have a woman, and then she gets this resolved one way or another, and her case is mooted. You have exactly the same question. In allowing the physicians who have a permanent interest in these cases uh, to bring the case, I think you get a much better determination. And one of the things about the standing doctrine, which has always been put forward, is to say you need to have these actualized and concrete experiences so that you can make a judgment on the full basis of the record. If that's the standard, the hospital and its administrators and its physicians, I think are really, in anything, a better position than the individual plaintiff to do it. Uh, So I've always been kind of distasteful of most of these standing arguments. And in this particular case, I think I would write an opinion building on the mootness point in Roe, and I would hold that the standing, in fact, has been satisfied. So final topic, as we head towards opening day in Major League Baseball, probably with no fans in the stand. We hope not. Is whether, well, I mean, we're starting to see as of today, some of like San Francisco is no longer allowing people in the basketball games for a while. So we'll see where it stands. There wasn't anybody going to watch the Warriors anyway. They suck. (laughs) Now, come on, John. I mean, be loyal to your home. Steph Curry is back. I think John's a a 76ers fan. I'm a Sixers fan. I'm a Sixers fan. You think that in Philadelphia... Do you think in Philadelphia they let some little virus getting the way of watching a Eagles game or a Phillies game? Come on. Oh, you better I, wait. I, I mean, this, this I've been to be Philadelphia sports. Which, the virus is part of the experience. John, I'll, I'll go there with it's the, the governor who's going to I'll, I'll let the baseball and let them play then. I mean, come on. It's going to be virus the in the game. So there is actually there is actually a legal issue here, fellas. And it's. It's whether the liability law around the game is going to change. So there was a recent ruling by an appellate court in California allowing a lawsuit to proceed for a young girl. She was young at the time this happened anyway. It was about six years ago. She was hit by a foul ball at a USA baseball event, cost her her vision in one eye, and she sued over it. It had earlier been dismissed by a lower court because the traditional legal standard has been that this is an inherent risk of attending a baseball yes. game. Assumption but, of the, risk. but the appellate court is now allowing this to go forward. And her lawyers are making the argument, look, you guys have expanded the netting at these stadiums in the past. There are all these things that you can do to mitigate the risk. This should not be entirely on the innocent person in the stands. Richard, who, in your judgment— ought to be shouldering the risk for this. Well, historically, what you said was correct, and the sentiment is surely changing. My view about this is that you do not want to put the, the netting all the way around because it's kind of a general cost-benefit judgment. Not only that, it's perfectly open and apparent, not only to the little child, but to her parents that there's no netting there. And so what you do is you have a much lower risk. It's going to materialize in some times, but I think, in effect, that it's going to be assumed. Uh, what happens is there are two standards here, John, rather 
and with Troy, and they're constantly in battle. One of them says something is open and obvious, and you have the option not to go there, to stay behind the net, to stay at home, to stay far back in the bleachers. You take the risk. The other one is we ask whether or not there's some additional reasonable precautions on a cost-benefit analysis that you can take, and a jury's entitled to decide that. The first standard almost always gets you a summary judgment for the defendant. The second one gets you an incredibly messy trial. I'm actually a defender of the first standard because you're trying to figure out what are the facts and circumstances of this particular case. What do you do? Uh, was the father and the mother with the child? Uh, were they looking the other way? Was there some other pedestrian or fan who was watching this? Uh, you start going down that particular road, it's going to be an extremely difficult thing to decide. So I would stick with the continued road. And if you really think that the stadiums are unsafe, uh, then you try to get some legislation, a city rule for it. I can assure you there would be boos and hollers if somebody said that you have to run the netting all the way around the stadium and up the three tiers. They'd say it's going too far. The reason you put it behind home plate is those foul balls come blipping at you very, very fast at very high rates. Uh, The risks are a thousand times lower everywhere else on the field. Now, John, this would require a ball to be hit in the air in Philadelphia, so it may be pretty abstract for you, but what's your view on this? Oh, oh, (laughs) oh. Oh, <laughs> we love you. I, I, I think I would just go with the assumption of risk. I mean, yeah, you could make the team put up nets and put up bigger screens, but people could also show up to the game with goggles on or wear batting helmets. I mean, you know, when you play the game, you put on a batting helmet when you're 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 uh, at bat. I mean, I think Troy didn't put it on enough, from what I can tell. But right, like, you, if you assume there is you the so there's, I guess there's this thing in torts called the cheapest cost avoider, who is like, who would better know uh, their vulnerability to being hit by a ball and the kind of, and who cheaply take measures to protect against? Seems to me it's the fans in the stadium because this happens very, very rarely. It unfortunately, hurt a kid, but the parents, if they want to take the kid to the base, it's not going to happen to an adult generally. So they're going to take the kid to the game. Put a catcher's mask on the kid. I play catcher. I hated it. I had to wear all this equipment. People kept trying to take me out, run into me. I get hit by everything, bats, balls, <laughs> all the time. But I did it because I because I, I wanted to play. I knew what the risks were to play catcher, and I had all that equipment on. So maybe we should just have parents put their kids, put the helmet on the kid before taking him to the game. Do you guys want to? It is traditional at this time of year. Yes, I've been for waiting us to make our World Series. Well, you're you're champing at the bit, John. So why don't you go first? The Houston Astros. That's not even interesting in the National League. Let's pick the American League. That's the interesting one. <laughs> Whom do you actually? Pick, John? I think the Dodgers are going to meet the Phillies, and then I think the Dodgers are going to win this time on the National League side. I think the, the Phillies set. are in irrelevance. I still like Angels. Wait, who's, I still so that's your American League pick? Is that, so you have a, a freeway series in mind, the Dodgers and the Angels. Yes. Okay. Really? Yes. I, I'm sufficiently ignorant on this that I, I really don't want to make an intelligent choice. Uh, I certainly don't want the Astros <laughs> to win this. Um, oh, they should, I, 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 on moral just, grounds, you I You know what you should do, them. Richard? If, if you feel like you're that far removed from the process, Jets make the crazy Vegas bet in the small hope that it comes true for you. Well, You'll look I, like I the most brilliant man I, in the world I, I, and I, say it's Marlins Mariners. I've got to remember what league these various teams are in. But, you know, I'm going to basically <laughs> harken back to my youth and say that the Dodgers and the Yankees oh. are going to play. Uh, it's not going to be a subway series. It's going to be a kind of cross-continental series. And I think this time the Dodgers will win. How do you like that for a man of infinite courage and no wisdom? I like it a lot because it was a, it was exactly the same thing that I was going to say. Oh, yeah. really? You've got Yankees are going to be yeah. good this year? Yeah, I think so. I think so. Really? Dodgers, Yankees. Yeah, I'd I love to think they have Yankees. a very good manager. The Yankees. No, no. Can we all agree that the best one would be if it were the Dodgers and the Astros again? That would no, be no, awesome. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> then you would need to put a lot of baseball uh, batting helmets on everybody. But I, you know, look. I mean, I do think that they, a lot of baseballs. there should be a lot heavier sanctions on the Astros. I mean, to say, oh, we did it and it didn't matter. Well, they're going to get it. The they're going to get it, Richard. They're going to get it at the plate. I mean, this is going to be yeah, frontier. No, justice. no, 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 no. I want them to get it. That's worse. I want them to get it in the following way. I think private ordering and deterrence will take care of everything. <laughs> the first thing you do is pull back the money. No, no. The system yes. is 
Correct. Take it, pay back the money. They got that money illicitly. You don't have to change it. See, the problem about giving relief about changing the outcome of the series is there are too many indeterminates. I am so that you're picking the big government solution instead I'm not, of like I'm picking the small government solution. The small government solution the way is these can. guys got money from both the playoffs and from the World Series that they did not deserve. I'm not saying that you give it to the other teams, but I think the important thing is to take it from these characters, one and all, and then give it to some public charity. Um, in it's like, God, this, this is getting worse and worse. What is with you today? It's not confiscation. <laughs> this is for this just, is for just cause and excuse. That's the key thing. I'm sort of with John on this. The the emergent order of indiscriminate violence yes. seems no, like the best not. way to solve this. No, it's not. You don't Skip. do this through Skip. the statute. Falls a chance. What, what you do is you do it through the league, and the unions get together with the management team, and they all decide solemnly to do this. Well, is I think appropriate. Richard has the virus. I don't have any virus. I mean, the problem is everybody understands that the real stuff here is that people believe that they basically crime paid in this particular case. And the erratic nature of the sanctions only apply to those guys who try to be managers after they finish their time with the Astro. And I think that that is wrong. When somebody like Mike Trout, is that his name? The guy from the Angels who's, you know, one of the world's most thoughtful baseball players, as well as perhaps the best baseball player. He was grousing about all of this stuff. So I'm basically a mainstream fellow under these circumstances, arguing for a modest sanction, which Uh is fully compliant with the rule of easement of reason and i will not take no for an answer from either of you well i sad, think I, speak, sad I think i speak for john too when i say that sounds really boring richard sad. Hey, that's exactly the point <laughs> it's boring and effective all right gentlemen well that is going to have to do it uh, my thanks to you both and to our producer scott emergate and thanks of course to our listeners remember to rate the show on itunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Our archives are there for the taking since you won't be allowed out of the house until Labor Day. We will be back with you soon. Until then, the Faculty Lounge is officially closed. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.